You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, with service members from across the military, sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. Before we get started with this week's episode, just a couple of notes. As always, reminder to follow us on all the social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Hazard Ground, at Hazard Ground Podcast. Of course, don't forget about our promotion with Amazon. Go to our website, hazardground.com, and click on the Amazon button at the bottom of the homepage or under the Sponsors tab, and you can do all of your normal Amazon shopping. We'll get a percentage of what you guys spend as well. We will donate that percentage right back to some of the great charities and organizations that have been featured here on the Hazard Ground. We told you last week, want to remind you again, if you guys would like some Hazard Ground stickers, we had a couple of these made, well, more than a couple, but you know, we had a bunch of these made just for you guys as a way to say thanks. So all you got to do is get on our social media sites, DM us your address, and let us know that you're interested in one, and we'll send one out in the mail to you guys as a way to say thanks. They're the exact logo that is on the podcast. They just re- look really cool and you know, I think it's a good way to start help promoting the podcast and letting people know what it's about. So if you want a sticker, just send us a DM and we'll get one out to you guys as soon as possible. Don't forget about leaving us a rating and a review. Help continue to grow this podcast. And one of the best ways to do that is to leave us ratings and reviews on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Keep letting everybody know how much you enjoy this show and the work that we do and these stories because they are so important. So please make sure you leave us a rating and a review and give us as many stars as possible. Finally, we hope everybody had a wonderful Labor Day weekend as we sort of get the unofficial close to summer out of the way and on to fall. Hope everybody out there is continuing to stay safe, stay healthy, and all veterans and former service members continuing to set the example through these very tough, trying times. Just remember, what we do represents each other, and it represents things that are bigger than ourselves, and we hope that we're all doing our best part to make sure that we are continuing to set A good example for all others to follow. Now, while that's out of the way, let's get on with this week's show. Joining us this week on the podcast is currently a U.S. Air Force Master Sergeant who has 18-plus years of experience. He is currently a pararescueman jumper, or PJ as he is more affectionately known. He has five combat deployments to Iraq and Afghanistan over the course of his career, as well as multiple other deployments around the world. He is also a special operations combative program level two instructor and an on it certified trainer. He is Aaron Love joining us on the Hazard Ground podcast. Aaron, welcome, man. Thank you for being here. Hey, what's up? Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. All right. You are a recommendation from a previous guest, Justin Lassick, who uh, told a phenomenal story. He and I had an incredible conversation. So clearly you have to live up to some high standards that Justin has set for you. And uh, uh, that's a pretty high bar to clear, to say the least. Absolutely. I've known Justin for a long time. I think we were joking around, you know, more than more than 10 years. And he brought it up that he he was like, hey, I mentioned your name to these uh, to this podcast, the Hazard Ground. I want to have you on there. I think I think you have something to, to tell him. And I said, well, as long as I can record before you do so I don't have to follow you. He said, well, too bad. <laughs> I got there first. He did uh, so there once first. again, he beat me to the punch. So, All right. Well, uh, you have an incredible career. Again, currently still on active duty, still doing this, this PJ mission, which is one of the toughest missions in all of the military. We've had on a couple of other PJs before, but uh, I love the mission because it, it's one of those jobs that not many people know about. Like everybody knows the Green Berets and the Navy SEALs, but the PJs are sort of the forgotten about part of the special operations community. 
Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely one of those where unless you know what you're looking for and unless you know the right questions to ask, people won't even bring it up. It's, it's one of those missions that I obviously connected to, you know, from a, a know your why from a very basal and visceral sort of thing. I'm like, I, I connected this thing, man. I can't understand why people don't think of it, but when they think about special forces and when they think about, you know, that ground maneuver force, you know, the air force isn't something that, that pops up right away. You got to do a little bit of digging. So, you know, thankfully I was, I had that exposure early on when I was a, a precocious 20 year old looking to come into the military. So, um, it, it worked out for me. Yeah. And, uh, that's, that's one of the reasons why we're out here, right. Got to get the, got to mm-hmm. get the word out about pay rescue. Cause we need, we need hardened operators as well. All right. Go back to that 20 year old kid, uh, and how and why you got into the military. Oh, simple. Uh, December or uh, September 11th, 2001 happened. So I was a, you know, at that time, I think I was actually 21. I was living in Ohio. I'd gone to the Ohio State University and I found myself on a water polo team that had a, uh, a, uh, a better record at drinking and partying than we did with water polo wins. So I wasn't very, uh, wasn't very focused on my school. So I bounced around to a couple jobs and September 11th happened. And I come from a, a very military family. So uh, I'm the, I'm the oldest of four boys. And all four of us are in the military. Um, all four of us made that decision shortly after, you know, September 11, 2001. So, you know, very shortly after September 11, 2001, I was, I was on a bus going to Lackland air force base, uh, in the air force. Now, why the air force? I mean, typically everybody would run to the army and the Marines knowing that those would be most likely the people to go right into combat. Why did you go to the air? Force? Absolutely. Yeah. It was my first choice. So my dad was a former, uh, he was a former army infantry guy. He went to, he went to ranger school. So he was a ranger qualified dude, but didn't go to the bat. So he's one of those guys that went to AIT right after Vietnam. And then he spent two years in Germany, really doing nothing, you know, after, after Vietnam kind of slowed down. And then he was a 30 year fireman paramedic where, uh, I, I distinctly remember I was driving, with my dad in Akron, Ohio. And I told him straight up, Hey, I'm going to go talk to the seals. I want to go talk to Marine recon. Cause I did the same thing. He goes, Aaron, just do me a favor. You're a, you're an analytical dude. Stop into the air force as well. They have special forces as well. I want you to go talk to them. Uh, so just by luck of the draw, I literally walked in the army guys were at lunch. The Marine guys were at lunch. The air force guy was there and he started talking about this job where you could be a, you know, nationally certified paramedic and you could jump into all these problems and you get more qualifications than everybody younger. The problem is, is it's a 91% attrition rate. So I looked at him and I said, Hey, can, when do I need to take this pass test? The first test you have to take is, is the pass test, the physical, uh, physical abilities and stamina test, I think is what it's called. But he said, when can you take this test? Most people have problems with the swim. And I said, well, I'm a lifelong swimmer. I don't know. My afternoon's free. I think I can take it now. And no kidding. I took it that, I took it that afternoon and uh, we had the contracts written up and I was gone two months later. You know, it's amazing. And I, I, I bring this up a lot on the podcast, but how many people walk into a recruiter's office and because the Marine guy is at lunch, they end up in the army because the army guy no. was talking to somebody else there in the air. I mean, it's just, it's Absolutely. crazy how many lives are left to chance like that. And young kids like well, yourself, yeah. you don't know any better. Like you're just, it's, it, in one way, it's kind of scuzzy because these guys are preying on you as you walk through the door just to get an enlistment out of it. But on the other hand, it's just like <laughs> one of those things. As crazy as it is, most of the stories, they're not like horror stories. that They end up working out the way that, that everybody wanted them to. 100%. Yeah, it's crazy. And it's actually such it, it's actually such a big deal. Like It happens so much. And you know, we kind of already talked about how Air Force Special Operations really isn't on the forefront of everybody's mind. That's quite literally why we started. I have, a, I have a group of friends of mine, you know, some other E8s. One of our, uh, we both made E8, the uh, the uh, special reconnaissance guy and I. But we've got a, a former PJ, really close friend of mine, and then a couple other guys. We got together and 
we started the ones ready podcast and Instagram page specifically for this. Like our whole job is just to get information about air force special warfare out there. Like what are these career fields? What do we do? So we have our own podcast and we have our own Instagram project that we've been working for. It's getting on uh, to about a year now, but it's, that's, the whole reason why we're there. So if you happen to miss the Air Force guy at lunch, you can find your own information. Like what does a combat controller do? What does a PJ do? What is special reconnaissance all about? Can I be an officer in Air Force special warfare? So, but you're 100% right. It's crazy. Like, no, I don't know how many, I would love to find some sort of RAND study of, Hey, did you, uh, did you walk in and try to talk to an army special forces recruiter and he just wasn't there? So that's why you're in the Marines now, because it's so common. Yeah, absolutely. And what's the name of the podcast and the Instagram page again for everybody? One's ready. So O N E S ready. Uh, so it's a, it's a throwback. So when you're, when you're in selection in the air force, you do underwaters a lot and you're in groups, you're in groups of, you know, you'll call it a count off by tens. So you have 10 groups of people. Well, when the instructor is ready to start the worst day of your life and start putting you underwater, he always says one's ready. And the team is supposed to say one sergeant. And that's how you count the number of reps you have. So we are the ones ready podcast. Cool. All right. Make sure you guys check that out. Okay. So, uh, you take your pass test, pass it, uh, and you are on your way to being a PJ true or untrue. <laughs> oh, 100% true. So the journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step, right? So yeah. That's, that's but, your kind of your ticket to ride the ride, but it wasn't that easy, obviously. Absolutely not. And especially for me, and I've, I've talked about this in some of my other online stuff, but I've actually been on four separate indoc teams, uh, back when they were called indoc now assessment and selection. I tried once uh, and I failed. I was one of the 90, 91% of the people that could not complete indoctrination back in 2002. So, you know, I, I got in the fall of 2001. I, you know, January 2002 reported indoc. Well, about eight months later, I found myself doing another job because I was just emotionally immature, unable to complete the program. And I had to do a different job in the Air Force for about two and a half, three years while I was training to come back. And then luckily, you know, fast forward, spoiler alert, I actually did complete the indoctrination course right. back in 2005 and then got into the pipeline from there. What did you fail the first time? I didn't fail anything. I got into an altercation with an instructor and uh, proceeded nice. to uh, have, a, have a, I mean, long story short. You like, gotta, no, you got to tell the story know. now, though. <laughs> All right. Yeah. I'll try to leave as many names out of it as possible. Please. The bottom line here is like, I had a blow up. I was immature and I said the words, I don't want to be here anymore. So I'm going to, I'm going to lay that one on the line for everybody here. Um, they can call that, you know, whatever it was, but an instructor and I was a little bit older, you know, instructor and I, uh, I, I was old enough to know that there's times where instructors are playing a role and there are times when, you know, they're, they're just dudes, they're trying to do the best that they can. Well, a, a uh, very famous instructor at the time and I got into a huge back and forth that led to me throwing things and saying, uh, if you are the type of person that is a PJ, I no longer want to be a PJ because this is bullshit. Um, and it was, it was absolutely immature and, and, and a terrible look. And I regret it every single day, just because of the way that I acted in the moment. Um, you know, so it was one of those things where the chief of the schoolhouse was like, Hey, uh, we have standards here and you're not living up to the standard. This isn't the time for you. I'm going to have to ask you to leave. You can come back at some point, but this isn't your time. And I'm I, looking back on it. I was just like, yep, that, that's what it is. Uh, amen. I'll see you later. And, uh, that was my fault. Two things. One, do you think that if you had not said that you would have completed everything? Uh, man, I'm not going to be that guy. I've heard so many stories of, I could have done it. If I could have, I could have been a PJ, if I was a better swimmer, I can, you know, for, for me to sit here and go, Oh yeah, I think I, I totally would have completed it at course. If it wasn't for this one moment, I think that's a little bit intellectually dishonest. The, sure. the number one thing, you know, the number one thing for me here is 
man, I did not live up to the standard period. And, and it wasn't my time. And the other thing I wanted to bring up was the maturity aspect. And, you know, I don't know if the civilians listening to this really understand uh, what young men and women are put in charge of and what the position that they're asked to do at ideally a really young age. I mean, there's a reason why you can't rent a car before you're 25 years old, right? It's a maturity issue because <laughs> 22 year olds are like, watch how fast I can take this car. That's stupid, right? Yeah. I mean, it, it, all of us have, have done it at some point in time, but everybody's like, okay, let me just try this. And so, right. you know, after some life experience, you realize, Hey, that's, that's a dumb idea. Let's, let's not do that. So exactly. Uh, and, and particularly for me on the officer side, you know, I look back on it and you talk about the biggest regret of your career. I, I've told people this religiously after doing this 20 years, the biggest regret I have is that I wish I was a better Lieutenant. Like I wish I wasn't such a smart ass punk. I really wish I didn't walk totally. into the room. Like I knew everything and everybody around me was stupid and, you know, and, and moreover, because I feel like I wasted good leadership opportunities on soldiers who deserved it. And, and that's just yep. immaturity coming out. And I, I think that that is something that, you know, if I could go back and change about my career, I would have been, and I'm not saying I did a bad job, but I just had a bad attitude. You know what I'm saying? I, I, oh, think, I, I think people around me respected me and, and my, my soldiers and my platoon, they, they, they all liked me and everything else because I had a very laid back attitude. And I was sort of like the black sheep of the officer corps as a, as a lieutenant. But there's also a line that needs to be drawn in understanding that in leadership positions, you have to hold to a certain standard of being a leader and you don't get to decide that standard. So, you know, it, it's one of those things where, I, I, I look back on it and I go, the people that I was in charge of deserve better than what I gave them. Absolutely. And, you know, and I look at it as, as now I look at it through a completely different lens, right? Like, you know what I hated hearing at 25? I hated hearing from a 30 year old that I didn't have any idea what I was doing at 25. Now as a 40 year old, let me tell you, I didn't know what I was doing at 35. Right. <laughs> you know, so to, to, ha to be able to look back through that lens, you know, I'm not upset that you know, personally, I didn't get to spend, you know, because I, I want to spend 20 years in the in the pararescue career field. So I need to I need to stay until 27 years or 26 years to do that because of my pipeline experience. And, and you know, when I put the beret on and what like that, whatnot like that, I, I'm not I don't regret those actions that first time at Indoc because of personally, you know, whatever I look back at it now, like that's not who I want to be as a PJ. That's not indicative of living the motto as a pararescueman. Like, I'm glad I didn't make it through because just like you said, like I was missing opportunities to be a mature individual and live up to that beret from the very second that I started at Indoc. And, you know, I paid for it with four years, five years of my career as a regular air force guy. Um, you know, I, I paid for that decision every single day. So every single day I was waking up at four 30 in the morning to train, to come back to Indoc. I was thinking about that moment and uh, that moment has been, you know, a, a big one. And it, it only takes one moment sometimes in those selection courses to where you kind of lose it, but that's what they're looking for. Because when the music stops and you're a pararescueman and something happens on target, somebody is going to look at you and they're not going to care that you're a 23 year old fresh out of the pipeline on their first deployment. You're going to have people that are looking at you like, this is the worst possible scenario. I need you to fix it. To that end. So you spent four or five years, you know, in, in a regular air force desk job, whatever it may be. Um, at the time, did you realize like the gravity of the mistake that you had made? I mean, I know you said you wanted to go back and you were training for it, but was it just one of those things where it was at the time it was, you know, all, all piss and vinegar where you're going, I'll show them I'm going to get this. Or was this more of a sort of seminal moment for you where you realized, you know, I've got to get my head on straight. It was kind of, it was the opposite. You know, I, I, um, I was done. I, I'd been at that selection course for almost a year. So I, I was there from January until, you know, October on multiple different teams, dealing with injuries, dealing with the, the, 
you know, I went right from one time. I had no break. Like there was no leave. There was no like going home to see my family. There was no relaxing on the weekend. I, I hurt my ankle on one team um, and then proceeded to go to that next team. And each one of those stints, I was there for like six weeks on each team. So I went through, you know, went through the extended training days and the hell nights and we went through the long days and we, you know, I knew exactly what I was getting. So really at the, at the time when I got there, I was like, you know what, I'm going to throw myself into this new job. Maybe being a PJ, you know, back then I was like, maybe being a PJ wasn't for me. Maybe they were, maybe they were right. And I'm going to take this feedback and try to grow up a little bit and, and see what it is. But I got the opportunity to go to jump school. So the, the desk job I did for the Air Force, I was an aerospace physiology technician. So I basically did the altitude chamber, and then I worked with high-altitude airdrop mission support teams that are basically the oxygen support for people that are going to, you know, high-altitude jumping or if you're going to drop equipment from way up. Basically, you need this one career field in the Air Force. So I was lucky enough to be there. So it wasn't like a true just desk job, but I was lucky enough to go to jump school. And at jump school, uh, one of my friends that had was on my same in-doc team, he was working over at Moody Air Force Base, and he was a, a PJ, obviously. And he said, hey, I'm, I'm having a poker game. Come on over. And the whole team was there. And in the middle of the poker game, he was like, hey, uh, you know, I always thought that you'd be a great PJ. And I always thought that you were a fucking dumbass for ever leaving the team. So why don't you get out of jump school, go home and put your package in? And that's exactly what happened. Like, that was the turning point right there where I was like, you know what? this is what I want to do. These are the people around that I want to be with. And I think I am ready to go back. So at the time, I think I was a 20, 26, 25 year old dude. And I was like, all right, here we go. Put the package in and go back. And then that's when the journey started back. Was there anything in your personal life that, that, you know, needed to be adjusted for this? Cause it's a huge commitment, right? I mean, it's a life altering commitment to, to go to this school and then get in and everything else. I mean, was your personal life all, were you still single at the time? I, I went home to a three week old daughter. Oh, wow. I had a, yeah, I had a young wife. Uh, I had my, my daughter, Anna was, was literally three years old. So I, no kidding. I walked in and I distinctly remember walking in. I was in DC at the time, but I walked into a, you know, my one room apartment and my wife was there and uh, my wife at the time was there and she was holding my daughter, Anna. And she said, Hey, um, how are you feeling? Did, did that make you want to go back? Like right away. And I just looked at her. I was like, what do you mean? She goes, well, I mean, it made you want to go back to Indoc, didn't it? And I looked at her and I was like, well, yeah, as, as a matter of fact, to do, she goes, okay, well, here's the deal. When you leave, I'm changing all the locks and you ain't getting back in. You go and you get selected because if you're going to put our family at risk, then that means this time it works out. That's the only option. I was like, all right, here we go. Wow. Was she serious about the lock thing? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, you know what? I, I never, uh, I never took the chance to figure it out. I just went ahead and passed everything because I, Knowing, uh, knowing her and knowing who she is as a person. Yes, absolutely. That is, she was the, uh, she still is the, the definition of a Spartan woman. She, she has something that harkens back to, a, you know, a, a long tradition of, of proud, strong women. And, uh, 100% I, that was not an empty threat. So I took it to heart and went and passed. Pretty awesome. Uh, so when you get back to Indoc the second time, was it easier than you remember? It was just different because I was the NCOIC, right? So I had to get out of my own self. Like, you know how it is with leadership. Like, I, I don't know how many times as a jump master, I'm getting ready to leave the ramp. And one of the last thoughts that I think in my, you know, I think to myself, I was like, holy crap, who checked me? You know, the stress of those moments and the stress of what's going on day to day really gets drowned out by me in my head going, what's going on with this guy? Do I have all the logistics set up for this next movement? Am I ready to lead in this next movement? How many people do I need to get there? What's my accountability look like? Do I have security in this situation? You know, I'm, I'm running those things through a checklist. Well, pretty soon at, by the end of the day, I'm like, Oh man, that's, that's another day down. Like, yeah, it was tough. And I made the physical stuff, but 
I was just, it was completely different. It was a different feel. I wasn't in my own head nearly as much because I was so consistently worried about the 130 other people. My, my, my NDOC team started with 130 people. So if you can imagine trying to, I mean, and it's just a controlled explosion down there from four o'clock in the morning until whenever you're done during the day, that's all it is. Like, it's just a, it's a punch in the mouth every single day for the entire time that you're awake. So um, if you can imagine trying to manage 130 people through that sort of controlled explosion, it, it gets tough. So it was tough for different reasons. There were definitely times at night where, again, I was a little bit older. Like I wasn't an 18 year old kid anymore. I wasn't a 20 year old kid. I was a 25, 26, 27 year old guy with my own you know, history of injuries and stuff behind me. And it would be nine o'clock at night and I'd be dealing with you know, young E3s that had never been away from mom and dad. And they're just, you know, they're thinking about quitting or they're, they need some real advice. Like I was sacrificing my own sleep. You know, I, I would kick guys out of my room at like 10 o'clock and be like, all right, man, I, I got to get some, some sleep. We got to be up in six hours to go do this thing again. You know, you, you go back to that moment, the first time you were there uh, and you'd mentioned before that, you know, that there are instructors there who are meant to sort of play a role uh, and, and do a job at the same time. Was there a time the second time around where you immediately realized that instructor, he's playing a role right now and there's a reason for this and there's a bigger picture and you understood it better? Absolutely. Yep. And it, it really hit it home. It was really solidified, you know, during my four year stint as an instructor where I saw exactly like sometimes you, you know, you, you take on your own persona. Um, you know, I don't want to make it sound like, you know, people are acting like it's always coming from a genuine place, but you know, that sometimes the only way to induce stress, um, some is, is to be dramatic is to induce that stress through other means. You know, you can't shoot at somebody during selection. We can't, we can't throw a flashbang in the room to simulate what it's going to feel like when a flashbang goes off. I, I can't simulate the stress of a deployment or of a near death scenario, but you know what I can simulate as an instructor, I can simulate a short timeline. I can simulate you having to pay attention to a long list of things that you need to do in order and perfectly in order to make them happen, you know? Um, so the second time that I went back, I had a lot of good experience. I'd already been to a couple of different schools. Like, you know, I'd already been to seer school. I'd already been to jump school. I'd been to a, a bunch of different survival courses as part of my other job. So I had a little bit more experience and I could see like, okay, the intent of this event is for them to dial the stress up. It doesn't matter how the instructor's doing it at that point. I was able to recognize, okay, this is an event where they want the stress level to be high. Got it. Now, how do I manage that? How do I respond to it? All right. So you get through INDOC and you still have to go through more schooling after this, right? Assessment and selection, so to speak, or is that all the same for you guys? So it starts off with assessment selection. That's what they're calling the new model here. But unlike all the other, some of the other, uh, and I believe most of them at this point, most of the other pipelines have caught up where they front load all the training. It used to be, you know, Army Special Forces, you'd get, you'd get through the queue, you'd get your, your designator, everything would be fine. You get through Robin Sage. And then on the back end of it, you may get some, some more of that advanced training. Like you might go to free fall school if you're going to a free fall team. You might go to dive if you're going to the dive team, et cetera. Well, the Air Force was like, screw that. We're just going to front load everything. That's why it makes the pipeline so long is because I get out of assessment selection and then I go to dive school and then I go to jump school. Then I go to free fall school. Then I go to paramedic school. Then I go to you know, the dunk. <laughs> yeah. Then I go to, to the dunker and then I go to some other pieces, parts that you need just to get to the apprentice course. And then, oh, by the way, the apprentice course is a seven month long graded event every single day where you do all of these advanced things um, comparatively. So, you know, look at a, an army, you know, the, the army typically is, is what we judge ourselves against as well, or you know, during our pipeline, right? You have an army guy that's a, a 30 year old special operator at the time that was just getting to go to free fall school. And you got a bunch of 20 year old PJs that are going there. Um, 
you're evaluated as a student on your free fall. You're evaluated as a student on your dive. You're evaluated as a student on your mountain rope scenario expertise, you know, in that, in that apprentice course, um, which is tough. So um, it takes a long time. And if you don't hit those schools back to back, you got guys that'll be in there for three years. Luckily enough, I had some of the other schools knocked out. So, but it still took me, I, I want to say 20 months, 21 months to right. get fully qualified as a PJ student. All right. So two years through a, through a training pipeline. Um, yep. The war, however, is sort of accelerating at this point. Are, are you chomping at the bit to sort of get to a deployment? Everybody was. Everybody was at that time. And there was a weird middle ground. So the teams were going so hard in the paint, so hard in the paint that there was nobody really to teach at these schools. And the guys that were teaching at these schools may or may not have had combat experience, you know, beforehand. Um, but it was, it was starting to turn the corner. Everybody could not wait to get out of school and onto a team. Like that was everybody's goal was get me graduated and get me downrange. Cause the stories we were hearing were exactly what pararescue has lived up to its entire, its entire, um, you know, history since 1966 and before, you know, all the way back to 1943, it was dudes doing impossible things in the face of overwhelming odds to help somebody that needs it. And when you're in the school, like, that's all you want to do. You're hearing these stories and you're like, get me out on that helicopter, get me out on the ground. I can affect this situation positively. So yeah, it was always on the forefront of our mind. All right. So how quickly after all the schooling, do you get to your unit and to a deployment? So you get to your unit, there's actually about six months more upgrade training. So they take you after, after you've, uh, you've been told for two years that you're going to be the tippiest tip of the spear. You're going to be this air force special operator that survived a 91% attrition rate. Boom. You're there. Uh, well, joke's on you because you get to the unit, you got about six to eight months of, of follow-on advanced training before you're technically deployable. So we call it our IQT or our MQT process. But as you get there, it's, um, you know, you liken it to a SEAL team, having your probie time or being a junior on, a, on an Army SF team. So after about six months, you're ready to go. At that time, it was really, really close. Like sometimes the deployment cycle would line up great and guys would only spend two or three months at home and then bounce out. I actually went overseas to the Milton Hall STS. So it was in England. So I started my upgrade training and deployed about a year after I got there. When do you get to your first actual deployment? Yeah. So the first actual deployment was uh, late 2009 or I'm sorry, 2010. So the oh, wow. first, uh, I did. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, just so, to put it in perspective, you were a kid who signed up right after nine 11. It takes almost a yeah. decade to actually get into combat. I know, I know. And it was the only thing I wanted to do, right? So, and it was, it, again, I spent those, that three or four year penalty paying. Um, that was the whole reason I went in was to get, get town range and, and go see combat. And, uh, you know, I spent those th first three or four years to, to that bad decision. So take that for your, your lessons learned right there. You know, that, that three or four year penalty puts me in a completely different spot. Yeah, so. sure. Yeah. I mean, does that, does that ever haunt you? Like not now, but I mean, back then was you were going through all of it saying I kind of missed, you know, a, a four year window by doing this. Not until I got back, you know, I was pretty okay with, you know, being the, the physiology job. I knew exactly what that was. Like my expectation management was good. You know, if, if I could have uh, tried to catch some sort of weird deployment. Like the only thing that they were really deploying to do at that time was, was kind of be a, you know, support person, like a third country. Now you could, you could deploy, but it was never for the job. Right. Right. As soon as I got back in and I started, I started really understanding what it was to be a PJ and what it really meant to go down range and, and try to try to go help and try to go win this fight. That's when that regret kicked in for sure.
that's, that's when I really felt those, that time where I was just like, crap, especially talking, you know, as soon as I got to the career field and all the guys that I was at Indoc with that I'm, you know, I'm still friends with to this day. They're like, you know, I had one of them just like, Hey man, you missed a, you missed a couple of good deployments we could have used you on. So how about you stop screwing around and, and get qualified? And I was like, all right. Yeah, noted. All right. So you get to this first deployment. Um, do you remember your first jump slash insertion kind of deal? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, kind of the same battle rhythm, you know, the first time that the helicopters are, are turning and, and you're not just sitting alert. So we did a very specific mission. It was a task force, uh, task force mission. So I had a very specific mission. Um, unlike most, uh, you know, most PJ missions. So a lot of times people, the, the easiest way to think about PJ missions kind of, and, and how they start. And this is the most bland way to think about it. Usually there's a box. If anything happens in that box, somebody pushes the help button. And if the PJ team is in the, uh, area, then the PJ team is going to go help and we're in that box. The other way that you can do it is that you're directly supporting something that's going on and you're just chicken hawking that mission and making sure that nothing goes wrong. And if it does, then that's why you're there. You're there at that first line of help in order to, to kind of stop what's going on long enough to, to gain relative superiority and, and then win. So I, I was on the ladder of that one for my first deployment, which is great as a young team member. So we had a mission packet every single night. And if anything ever happened, then, uh, you know, on those missions, then we would go and we would go to the point of injury and we would go start and to, to try and infect change. So yeah, the first time those rotors started turning they were like, Hey, we're, we're going on this thing. They need you guys to, to come and fix this specific problem. Uh, yeah, it was, it was really, really, uh, distinctive for me in my head as we took off out of, out of, uh, Iraq at that time to go up North. Tell me kind of the, I guess, preparation um when you make this first jump i mean are you nervous do you feel like you have been sort of primed for this moment through this two plus year pipe or this two-year pipeline that you went through um you know what's your what's your mindset man i'll tell you there's a there's a lot of things going on in your head right so um you know the first mission you know, i don't have a jump mission when we say jump that's a big deal so i, I do not have a combat jump i'm going to put that out there just for every all, all of my boys are listening this isn't going to be the sound bite that you get me on fellas so uh <laughs> you know as, as we're going you know um the very first mission that i actually had was a civilian rescue we were training in england so this is probably three months i guess out of the pipeline uh, we got a call that there was a super tanker in the, in the North sea and it, they obviously couldn't turn around. We're talking about a huge, you know, container ship that's, you know, 400, 500 miles off the coast of Ireland. There's a Filipino sailor that had appendicitis and he was going downhill, uh, extremely quickly. There was no other way to get him there. So they essentially called us from England. I had, uh, you know, four or five air refuelings. They hoisted us down on a super tanker. I did some, some quick medicine on this guy to make sure that he was going to be good. And then, you know, we hoisted him from that moving ship and the super tanker deck back up and then, you know, six or seven more air refuelings and we're, we're dropping him off in Ireland. I distinctly remember going down on the hoist, um, in the middle of the open ocean. Um, it's a little bit windy. Both, both the vessels are moving, like those ships can't stop or they tip over so that, you know, the ship is moving, the helicopter is moving. They're hoisting me down, hopefully to an area. There was nobody to tag me down to, to basically have a line to, to bring me down where I'm supposed to. So, I mean, it's me. And I remember thinking, man, I, I hope that two-year pipeline set me up well because I'm doing it, no kidding, on my own. You know, I had a team leader with me. There was one of the PJ, but he had to stay in the helicopter to get me on the deck and run the mission. So I, I, I remember, you know, he, he came down and helped me package the patient. We kind of did it in reverse. But I remember thinking, holy shit, man, this, I'm doing PJ stuff. Like, that's crazy. Good feeling, I assume, right? It was, it was amazing. 
yeah, because in the end, the, the guy lived and, um, and that's what we're there to do. You know, if, if you call us, we are going to come and we're going to fix your problem and we're going to kill ourselves trying. That's what the motto that others may live means. It means if you call us, we're coming no matter what. We fully realize that we might we might die on this. We have a long history of, um, you know, some of those names that that unfortunately weren't able um, weren't able to get home alive themselves. But that's why we're there. Let me ask you, I guess this is a stupid question, but uh, remember, there are no stupid questions. There's stupid people who I ask love- questions. So, um, <laughs> you know, I'll, t- I'll take the bullet on this one. But what, what's the distinction in your job between Coast Guard rescue swimmers who essentially sort of do the same thing? Is it just the nature of combat versus non-combat? First off, how dare you? No, so, um, <laughs> so, so PJs and combat rescue officers, we're the only DOD entity that trains specifically for personnel rescue and recovery as a primary mission set inside of the soft architecture. So while the Navy does have rescue swimmers and Coast, Guards do, Coast Guard has rescue swimmers and stuff, and by the way, we work closely with, with all those people. You do, okay. Um, yeah, yeah, we do. So it, it, we're talking about going down and working with the Coast Guard guys and doing some wet surf training here really, really soon. They do it in a very, very narrow sort of um aperture right so a a navy navy rescue swimmer a coast guard rescue swimmer they're there literally to protect their assets in their small piece of the world and perform that function um whereas pararescuemen we train for worldwide deployments in the whole pr architecture to include sensitive item recovery so we have all these sweet unmanned aerial vehicles that are flying around right Mm -hmm. have you ever thought of who who goes and gets those when they get taken down well, it's pararescuement. Yeah, we're, okay. we're the ones that go. Yeah, absolutely. And the combat focus as well. You know, we're, we are armed combatants. Um, we're not medics. That's a, a common misconception, right? Like we have gold standard trauma medicine, but typically we're not the guy that you want on, on medicine. 18 deltas soak us in field medicine, 100%. Like I don't know how to treat indigenous populations for any number of large, you know, health concerns that they're working with. That's not, that's not my lane. So we train to a different standard. We train to a very specific mission set. And while we do look like some other entities, like sure, our medicine does look like an 18 Delta. Our, you know, helicopter employment into the surf can sometimes look like a rescue swimmer, but we put all of those things together for a different capability. You said a moment ago, you don't have a combat jump. Does that bother you? Yeah. (laughs) Well, I mean, it depends. I mean, is it like, is it like one of those things around the teams where, you know, Guys are wearing a patch or whatever it is that they did that, and you know you're, you're sort of the uh, the outcast. It's a scarlet letter if you're not wearing one. Hey, I, I won't lie to you. Of course, of course, there's got a competition. Of course, when you hear about it, when you're like, oh man, hey, did you hear this guy jumped into place X with Team Y and he got his combat jump off? You're like, no way. Of course, there's that little jealousy there. But you know, there are people that uh, there are people that aren't here today that uh. You know, we're working towards that, working towards that combat jump or, try, you know, tried to, to get to that combat jump. So I, I don't know if I want to, I want to, you know, again, being intellectually as, as honest as possible, there is always a part of us that is striving for that, that home run mission, that really, that jump mission that, um, that goes off. And, you know, looking back on it, just, just look how, how much of the career fields wish that they were on the Bin Laden raid or wish right, that they were sure. on, you know, you know, Alzer Cowie, you know. Every JTAC in the world wanted to be the guy that's calling fires in on the nation's enemies, you know? So a part of me, of course, um, you know, I, I wouldn't say that I'm sitting here and wishing for it. Cause I'll tell you what, as I, as I get older and I'm going to steal this from one of my team leaders, I heard it before my desire to be in firefights and to be in that movie type shit is getting lower and lower and oh, lower hell yeah. because, <laughs> because that man, 
the first couple of times that that, that stuff starts popping off around you, it, I won't lie. Like, okay, it's it's cool, it's exciting. You get home and you feel a little bit bulletproof. I don't know how many more of of those events I have coming out clean, um, and more importantly for my team. So, yeah, I hope my team guys hear this as we're talking. I, I hope they don't see anything on their next deployments. I hope it's the most boring deployment of all time. No jumps, no calls, no nothing. Well, I know that's not the reality. No, but, but it's, I mean, it's a, it's a double edged sword, right? Because if you've been in enough combat, you start to realize, you know, the scope of it and and what the ultimate results are of it. Like for someone who's never been there. They want it because they want to experience it and they want to see what it's like. But, you know, after you get through two or three of these and you start to realize, oh, shit, you know, people die on this. And and I don't want anybody else to die. You know, I mean, it's. Oh, yeah. I, I have the conversation with my wife all the time. I'm like, listen, I told her if I, if I ever get a de- brigade, I'd love to deploy it overseas because, you know, that's an awesome. She's like, what are you going to leave the kids? And that's what we're there to do. And, well, I said, but it's not like I want to, but. You know, first of all, I'm not going to be in any danger at this point. You know, I mean, short of a, a mortar, you know, unluckily landing in my ass, uh, you know, right. I, I'm generally going to be okay. I'm not going to be at risk. But, you know, in, in the same respect, it's like one of those things where I don't need to be at risk anymore. You know, at this point in my career, exactly. I've been doing this for 20 years. I don't need to, I don't, I don't, not, I'm not longing for the experience. If it happens, I'm not going to run away. Like, you know, obviously Absolutely. if something goes on, I'm not going to, you know, sit behind a bunker and cower. But in the same respect, yeah, I, I've, I've kind of done this enough to know that, after a while, the experience gets a little overrated and you'd rather not have it. It really does. And some, you know, and unfortunately I've, I've had this experience enough where, man, sometimes it's not going back to the team room and cleaning up and talking about what a great job it was. Sometimes it's going back and talking about people that you just lost. And that's, that's terrible. Like that feeling, uh, you know, I said it, um, I had a very distinctive experience a couple of deployments down the road where I, I looked at the flight doc that deployed with me and I was like, Hey, you know, this one hurts. I don't know how many more of these I got in me. And, you know, that was a, that was a, a real moment for me and, and, and her sitting in that room. But, you know, um, those, those feelings of, of coming back and feeling that loss and feeling friends die and, and going, going to funerals and, and that stuff, I'll tell you what, that shit hurts way more than a successful firefight feels good. And you start, you start thinking about things in a different lens. Well, I could tell you every firefight I've been, I've been in, I, I can recall with pretty good clarity, right? Like I can remember certain things about it. But I can guarantee you, I remember everything about those fallen memorials. I remember the Every boots. I remember thing. the dog tags. I remember, the, I remember seeing the people who were crying. I remember seeing the reaction. Yep. All those memories are crystal clear in my mind, and I'll never forget yep. them. I may forget the entirety of what happened in my combat experience just over time, but I don't know if I'll ever forget those memorial ceremonies. And those things are burned into not, you know, not only your mind, but sort of your being and your soul because – experiencing that and that type of loss, I think is something that just, you know, on one hand, you know, it unites us, but on the same hand, it's one of those things that it just, uh, you go through it and, and you don't know how to deal with it at the time. And I think, you know, it don't, it only, you can only learn to deal with it over time, if that makes sense. Yep. No, I agree. Yeah. All right. So, you know, you have five combat deployments. What's kind of the nature of these things? If you guys aren't, jumping into places all the time like what's the experience of it then yeah so we we get there for you know whatever it is that we can do so a lot of times you know thanks to inside combat rescue and rescue warriors and some of these these things that gave like a really myopic view of what we do people always assume two things that we're either you know always halo jumping into things just because free fall jumping is fun so all the pjs out there that you know they show their training what's the thing they show well they show military skydiving 
And then thanks to Inside Combat Rescue, they showed us as, you know, essentially really, really high speed flight paramedics that only worked on helicopters. I actually had a, uh, I actually had a commander one time and I will, uh, I'll withhold any personally identifiable information here, but the commander at a spouse's day looked and said, yeah. And you know, my PJs, they're really high speed, you know, think of them like really high speed air force paramedics. And, uh, every single PJ wife in that thing, you should, the, just the livid fire behind their eyes. Cause it's just such a small part of what we do. But back, you know, 2005, really to 2008, 2009, we were part of that Kazovac mission. So just like you would call for dust off and you'd call a nine line, sometimes you'd get dust off, but sometimes you get a PJ team, especially in, you know, the Hellman province um, of yeah. Afghanistan during that time. I mean, we were balling out. Dudes were on like an eight minute clock. When that call came in, you were done. The birds were already loaded and you were responding. If there was anything like we called them cat alphas at the time, but it was your most critical, you know, trauma patient at a point of injury. If that call came in, you were gone in less than eight minutes. I mean, you were on, you were sprinting to the helicopter. The team leaders were, were stopping to get, you know, the ISR feed and, and look and, and get the most information they possibly can. So your officer and your team leader, your crow and your, your PJ team leader are getting that information and you were sprinting to the helicopters and you're gone. And you're about to go insert two Air Force HH-60s into an active firefight in order to grab somebody that's in the process of dying. Um, and I had guys that, that went to, to Hellman during that time, came home with 240 of those missions. You know, 150 to 200 of those missions during a single deployment was not out of the ordinary. Um, and that was kind of doing the Kazovac mission. So as you're sitting there on, on alert, um, you're, you're really waiting for anything and everything, right? So the pararescue career field is known as we're the jack of all trades, uh, the master of none. Mm-hmm. I heard it. Des- I heard it described really well by one of the tier one uh, special mission units. He was a commander of one of their squadrons, and he said, "You know, UPJs are awesome to have in pretty much every conversation. You might not know a hundred percent about uh, about one thing, but you know about ninety percent of a ton of things. And you guys are always helpful to have around." So. I thought that was a cool way of describing it, but that's, that's kind of how deployments can be. You know, I went to, a, I went to a very slow, um, combat mission 2015 out to, to Bagram airfield. We responded, however, on base to some of the most complex scenarios, there was a trench that collapsed on a third country national and the fire department didn't have the technical rescue skills necessary to extricate him from this confined space. So we ended really? up engaging there. Yeah. We actually, uh, same deployment, there was a, an incoming rocket attack because that was all the rage back then. Well, it, uh, it hit the prison. It hit the detention facility for all of the terrible people that we keep on those bases before they can be interrogated. And uh, it turned into about a 60-person mass casualty event that I had to take my team over to the hospital. And we actually made a makeshift treatment bay, two or three of them, um, and we were help, helping to treat triage page, uh, patients during that one. So you know, it, it, it kind of depends on, on all flavors, you know, guys are going to Africa right now and doing a very specific mission that looks a lot more like training indigenous personnel and indigenous forces, um, in order to fix their own problems. So these are all things inside the PJ mission set that you can do. Yeah. Maybe you get that combat free fall jump into a contested area. Maybe you are teaching other special forces, you know, um, T triple C and helping them defend their own countries, or, you know, maybe you are riding on the back of that helicopter into a firefight to, to save patients, or maybe you are helping a, a special forces team in the mountains with your technical rescue skills, just helping them get from point A to point B without losing somebody off a cliff. Um, I think that's probably the, the best part of the, the pararescue career because you, you never know, 
you could deploy and have a, a very calm, you know, a deployment with no calls or, or no nothing, or you could go and just be balling out the entire time. It just kind of depends. That's crazy. I mean, just, you know, again, to learn about the nature of what you guys do, it's, it's, I don't know why it's been so, considering the rest of the special operations community has been put on TV and, and movies and books and everywhere else. It's amazing that you guys are almost like the forgotten child in this whole thing, uh, given how much that you guys do. So to that yeah. end, um, I mean, you talk about losing some teammates and, and, and some brothers and, and what you guys mm-hmm. have done. Um, what does that do to you? You know, I, I know you mentioned before, again, it's you, you sort of have your fill of combat, but uh, the emotions right after it and how you get back out there for the next mission. I mean, what's that like for you guys? That's been the hardest because you don't know how long it's been, you know, for that next mission. So, you know, in uh, I, I just told this story to, to my friends the other day because, you know, I take this stuff seriously. You know, the, the operator 2.0 or where we need to go is, is the people here. Like operator, you know, 1.0 is kind of that, um, you know, that Jocko Willink, that, that David Goggins, that I'm going to press forward and through sheer force of will, I'm going to own these, these situations. You know, I, I think we're, I, I think we're slowly transitioning into, you know, operator 2.0, which is like, Hey, mental health is important. Are, how are you actually feeling? Are you ready to go do this? So, you know, in that vein, in, in 2012, I was on a winter deployment to Hellman and we had a really, really hard call for one of my young element leaders. So he was out on target and he was, <clears throat> He was having to make the, uh, a very, very tough decision. Um, and that decision was there was an MRAP that was blown up in such a way, thanks to an IED, that it was completely mangled and there was no way to extricate the driver, which is why we got called in. One of the options there is that sometimes if you cannot cut the vehicle away from the person, um, and unfortunately, and, and for everybody that's not really uh, not really hip to this sort of thing. I'm sorry if it gets graphic, but the only other way to, to remove that person from the vehicle is sometimes to perform a field amputation on that person as low yeah. as possible, obviously, and then remove them from the vehicle. If you can imagine a 25 year old on target talking to the commander of the unit and you have to tell him that that is how you're going to pull that person out of the vehicle. That is, that is awful. Um, the emotional impact that that had, I, he, uh, when his name was, uh, let's, let's call him Dave. When Dave came back and, uh, I was tracking the mission, obviously I was the operation superintendent at the time for that deployment, but you know, he came back and, and he kind of, he talked to me, I, I looked at my officer and I was like, I, I hate to do this, but for his own good, I got to pull him off alert. Like he's got to take a 24 hour knee, man. Like I'll, I'll take his position on the aircraft, but he, he needs, he needs some time. Um, I, I think I said it before, but I, I have this theory where I think you have, everybody has a finite number of times that they can go through that no matter how good you are. And no matter how, how intensive uh, you are, if intention, uh, I guess intention would be the word, no matter how much intention you have to communicate your problems and work through those issues and be open and honest with your teammates and reach out for help. I really do think that there is a finite amount of times that you can deal with those sort of earth shattering things before um, you need to just take a break. You just need to be out. And for some people, some people that's their, you need to be done. You know, other people can respond to it and come back to it. But that emotional, imagine it like a cup and you're just, you're filling that cup up um, every single time that it happens. And some, some uh, filling times are, are bigger. Some, some things hurt worse. You know, some guys can go on deployments and have terrible things. And they're like, listen, I, I just never really emotionally connected to it. And, and it is what it is, but they'll lose a teammate to a training accident and that's the one that gets them, you know? So 
Um, those events are, are terrible to deal with. But I think as we move towards that kind of like operator 2.0 sort of mindset where no kidding, we're valuing mental health, which has always been a problem. I think those, the abilities, I think we can make guys cups bigger. I think we can allow them to take on a little bit more with the support that we're giving them. Has any of your guys on your team, you know, ever, ever reacted in a way you didn't expect to that sort of thing? I think they, yeah, I think I'm a, I'm more of a sensey. I think I'm more of an idealist. I always think that guys are going to, are going to be more affected. Um, I've, I've actually been impressed, especially with the younger guys to where they go, Hey, Hey Aaron, this really sucks and this hurts, but I'm going to be able to deal with this. And I want to go back out there and they're right. You know, watching them deal, um, in a, in a mature manner and, and being open and honest with their mental health and telling me, no kidding. I always think it's, you know, I was, I always fear the worst. I'm always worried about my guys. So I'm always thinking, Hey, this, this is worse than you think it is. You just don't know it yet. So I'm always a little bit more intrusive and aggressive on that sort of thing. But I, I think when I see a guy that no kidding does the right thing, he goes, Hey, Hey Aaron, I'm fine. I, I'm good to go for the next one. I'm cool. Um, and he's right. Cause you can always tell. I think that's what surprises me the most. You know, every, every once in a while, you, you'll see it the other way. Every once in a while, I'll see somebody that they're like, hey, I'm good. I'm like, you know, I, I don't think you are. I, I think I'm going to sit you down anyway, and I think we need to have a talk about this. Um, but, yeah, I, I think that's probably the most surprising is, is seeing that, that these guys really are, how resilient that they really are and how well, you know, those programs are working because they're, they're right. They are ready to go. Yeah, you know, and I'm just recounting in my head. There, there were a couple of times, even you know, uh, listen, we we didn't lose anybody on on my deployments. You know, we got into our fair share of firefights, but there were a couple of times where I just had to look at one of my guys and tell you need to sit this one out. Like you need yep. a break. Like you need to understand that you know the the world and the mission will continue without you because it, it gets to a point where you know it, the guys would fight you on it. No, I'm ready. I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. I'm like. You need to sit this one out. But in the same respect, I look back and I think, I never sat one out. You know, like, no, nope. <laughs> I never yeah. sat one out. It was my job to tell other guys to sit down, but I never sat yeah. one out, you know, because <laughs> yeah. I, it, yeah. it just, it was always, it was always my responsibility. I mean, but there was never mm-hmm. a time where we rolled outside the wire where I wasn't sitting right in that first vehicle in the TC, you know, in, in, in that, in that passenger seat running the mission. But it's, it, oh, yeah. it's just kind of weird how uh, we try to manage everybody else, but sometimes we forget to manage ourselves. You totally forget. Yeah. And if you look back kind of at, you know, that conversation where I had when I lost, uh, his name was staff sergeant, uh, or I'm sorry, Sergeant first class, Mike Cathcart. So he's an army special forces guy. We lost in Congo, Condus, uh, 2015. But when I was talking about losing Mike and, and saying, Hey, you know, th- this one is tough for me. Uh, I, I was on alert. I went on alert the next day, you know, and we still had a job to do. And, and to that end, like I was, what am I going to do? I was the, I was the ranking PJ at, on that operation. What am I going to do? Sit down? No, you can't. So, you just find other ways to manage. I know you mentioned that time where you had to amputate a guy in the vehicle. Was that the toughest mission you had? And if not, what was? Oh man. Uh, so that, that luckily, that luckily it wasn't me, but I, I think the toughest mission I, I definitely had was, was, uh, was Sergeant first class, Mike Cathcart. So, uh, Condu's operation, uh, 500, uh, you know, Afghanistan national, um, you know, military members, we were essentially retaking Condu's airfield and in, in the, the winter of 2014, early 2015 ish timeframe, it's a huge operation. Um, you know, clearing one of the villages going from NAI to NAI, we were sitting alert and unfortunately, uh, you know, Mike, uh, part of the special forces, uh, special forces ODA team on the ground at the time, uh, they got into a firefight. Uh, and he caught around the worst possible area. I mean, right underneath his armpit, um, it completely transected his chest and, and, and worked all the way through. It was one of those golden BB 
completely non-survivable wounds. Um, had, had he gotten that wound, we had a, a forward operating Air Force surgical team uh, known as the SOST, the Special Operations uh, Surgical Team that, that they had far forward. Even if it had happened in the room that they took over to make their OR, if it had happened right in front of them, I think it was probably 80-20 that he still would have died. Um, so unfortunately, you know, we get back to the, uh, uh, the the pickup happens, point of injury. There was another helicopter that was closer, so they got it. So we met them basically tail to tail um, at the, the Ford staging facility and, and got them in. And, and we helped out the uh, PJs are also trained usually if you're downrange with the appropriate teams they, they train you to help with surgery so it's called being a first assist you're one of those people that can sit there and be another set of hands because we, like if you look at a pj and you're like hey give me that scalpel the pj knows what scalpel you need so it just makes sense for them to, to assist in surgery like this especially about you know a lot of patients so um we helped out the best we could and tried to stay out of their team and un- unfortunately he passed away um hardest hardest mission of my life of my professional life number one because i I thought there was something that we could have done to get there earlier. I, I think looking back on it now, I don't think that's true, but uh, the hardest part about it was their team was still out on target. So they still had a job to do. And in the meantime, uh, myself and another PJ friend of mine, we kind of looked at everybody in, in the, the emotion uh, of the event. So kind of in the middle of the event, when we realized that, that unfortunately we had lost Mike, um, I had to be the one to think about what's the next step here. The next step is a dignified transfer to get him his angel flight to go back home. Um, and, and the surgical team at that point had stuff to do. So my element leader and I prepared Mike, uh, for his team and having his team come in and, you know, anytime anybody leaves target, like when you, when you hand somebody over to my team, there's a a solemn promise between you and I that, that he's going to be okay. You know, there's a, mm-hmm. there's a solemn promise that, that you give the ground guys look at you and they're like, man, I need your help. You got to, you got to fix this. Um, I, I think I saw it on every single one of their faces. We, we had, we cleaned him up and we got him ready to, to, to be presented to the team. We had a flag draped on him and he was ready for his, his, his move. Uh, we did the best that we possibly could, but watching the realization of his friends walk in that room and kind of look at us being like, Hey man, we asked you to fix this. And, and you didn't like, I, I don't think that that was their intent but that's what I felt in that moment. You know, I, I, I didn't feel like a, a failure, so to speak, because I know what it was. Like I'd seen enough of these to know, you know, what a, what a patient looks like, but you know, that doesn't stop the hurt. And then having to, uh, having to prepare him and, and basically get him ready for his team to see him, uh, you know, where he was alive an hour ago. Um, and that, that one haunts me. That's, that one's tough. In, in what manner does it still haunt you? Um, I don't know that that flavors a lot of what we do that flavors. Um, you know, I sat alert differently for those, those sort of missions. Um, I'll, I'll always push to go in there faster. Like I'll always push the sauce tea to be closer to combat. I'll always try to get a PJ on the ground, um, for somebody to, for somebody to help out. Like that's one of the reasons why we profess that capability far forward. So a lot of, a lot of people don't understand this as well, but PJs get us get attached to these teams specifically for that sort of, that sort of scenario. So that as the issue happens on the ground, they can be that stopgap, that band-aid to stop the process, uh, whatever it be, whether it's an extrication or whether it's a, a critical patient that needs to get out of that right there. Um, so that the other rescue teams can then come in and make sure that the, the problem is stopped. So, um, and, and I think it's just the, the feeling afterwards, like as we get Mike ready to go and, and he gets onto his C-130 and, you know, we talk to his commander and, and his first sergeant and some of his friends and stuff. Um, 
you know, that was tough. And it, it turns out like, you know, years later I work the place where I work now, the combat controller that was on the ground with Mike right next to him actually works. He was on that mission. I, I had no idea. And we, you know, through over copious beers up here, he and I started sharing that same story. We realized we were there together and, and he tells me the, the same thing. Was there anything that we could have done for Mike? No, I, I think in reality, no, I think that was just, that was his time. Uh, he went out doing exactly what he wanted to do, which is he was on his feet fighting like a lion behind his rifle. Um, he went out like a goddamn grown man. Um, but that, that doesn't, that doesn't make his loss any easier to take. He may have went out fighting like a lion, but, um, you know, it was, it, it was just tough to deal with, um, because sometimes that happens. Sometimes it really is a Kobayashi Maru and there's no win that you can get there. Incredibly tough stuff, man. You know, um, and I appreciate you sharing that because it's, there's value in it for everybody to hear it. Um, and you know, uh, I, I hope you find a way to get a piece with it. I mean, I really do. I, obviously it's never going to go away. It's always going to be there with you, but, uh, just the, the, the way you learn to deal with it, um, you know, says as much about you in these post moments as it did in the moments when it happened. Yeah, I agree. And, and again, I say it all the time, you know, dealing with this loss. Well, if, if you're not doing something better, if you're not doing something better in his game, you know, if I'm not thinking about better tactics, if I'm not thinking about my friend, you know, tech Sergeant Peter Cranes, who unfortunately just died in a training accident, you know, if I'm not thinking about better ways to conduct mountaineering operations because of Peter, that Peter died for nothing. We can't do that. We have to learn from, we have to learn from these incidences and use that pain to get us forward, to keep us moving on. I think the second that you, you just kind of take these shots on the chin and don't do anything about it. I think that's probably when you need to lay it down. I think when you stop treating it like a fight and you, you stop fighting back, you stop engaging in that process. I think that's where we start running into trouble and we start seeing some serious problems. To that end, you know, obviously you're still in, uh, you're still doing this very incredibly tough mission. Uh, you had mentioned that you, you know, are hoping for a boring rest of the career, so to speak. So how will you know <laughs> when it's time to hang it up? I don't know. I don't know. I, you know, a couple of, a couple of those indicators is, um, you know, I, I don't necessarily, I, I don't beat my, my flight in anything, you know, the two teams that, you know, I'm, I'm a flight chief. So essentially, you know, to speak in army speak, you know, I'm essentially a, uh, you know, a platoon sergeant, you know, a little bit, a little bit bigger than that. We run big platoons. Um, we call them teams, but you know, it's really, you know, your standard, you know, nine to 26 dudes. We have small platoons that we call flights just because of our manning. It's, it's so low, but you know, I'm never going to be number one on there. I shouldn't be the fastest runner. I shouldn't be the strongest person. I shouldn't be the best shooter. I shouldn't be the best at medicine, but I never want to be the guy that sits back and doesn't engage. I don't care if my, you know, we just got back from a long distance shooting course. I, I'm not going to talk a whole lot of shit and say that I'm going to win, but I'll be damned if I'm the guy that doesn't shoot because I'm the old guy. You know, when I, when I start taking those, those easy way outs, when I start going, Oh, maybe the young guys should get some here. Absolutely not. Uh, that's not good. When I'm not fit enough to do the job and keep up and not be a burden on the team, when I'm not actively learning and engaging and, and being motivated, then maybe I'll, maybe I'll start looking at laying it down uh, because I owe the beret and I owe the career field more than that. You know, I, I owe them more than I could ever give them back. Um, so when I start kind of getting to that area where, you know, the standard is good enough, you know, the status quo is good enough. If I ever, if I ever feel like I'm giving that as a personal effort, I think that's probably about the time where I'm going to have to hang it up. You said at one point, I read something you wrote in that 50% of the work is just showing up. The other 50% is what you do with it. Uh, to that end, absolutely. what would you tell young kids who say, I want to be a PJ? I'd start with, Hey, know your why, you know, why do you want to be a PJ? 
because that's where you got to start because that's the only voice that you're going to hear. If you want to be a PJ because you're going to get cool, get like you get Arc'teryx everything and you get a sweet pair of gators and you get, you know, great funding and the Air Force takes care of you and you get to wear your hair long and you get a sweet beret. If those, if those are the reasons why, I mean, okay, you can try to make that work. But when you're getting your absolute face kicked in every single day at assessment and selection, and oh, by the way, the pipeline is not the hard part. Living day to day is the hard part. Living day to day on alert where you could, you know, I could get a call right now and I could unfortunately not come back from that call alive. Um, having that burden on you. And, and by the way, if you fail on that mission, it means you failed the career field. Uh, that's tougher than anything else. So you better know your why. So the, one of the one of the things we tell people on on the Ones Ready podcast or anytime that we engage with people, because we engage with people all the time uh, and I get the chance to invest with those people, you better know your why. I want to be a PJ because I want to cheat death. I want to I want to stop humans from dying. I want to get them to a place where they can have the rest of their lives. And I want every single American service member to know if they ever get hurt, if they ever get lost, if they ever need us, you call my team, we are coming. And we are going to fuck shit up until you come home. And if one of my guys dies, he's already made that choice. He made the choice long before he ever got on whatever vehicle we're getting to you. I want people to know that. That's my why. If you don't have that why, if you don't have something to to look back on and to really make your home, you're going to have a bad time. There is going to be a time where you're going to fail. So 50% of it is showing up. 50% of it is discipline and getting out of bed and being there on time and having the right gear. But that other 50% of the time, you better be in the fight. It's not good enough just to show up and not quit. Not quitting is, is expected. Not quitting and not, not leaving the event early, that's expected. That other 50% of the time with you making it the best that you possibly can be and living your why, living the motto, I would want to figure that out early if I was a young guy that was coming in or gal that's coming in today. Know your why. Figure out why you want to be here so that it's rock solid. So at the worst times of your life, you know, at those times where I was looking at my friends and saying, hey, I don't know if I'm ready for this next mission, I could look internally and I could go, wait a second, why am I here? I'm here to take this team on deployment. I'm here to bring everybody home alive. And when somebody calls, I'm there to go fix the worst day of their life. That's why I'm there. And in those moments, I can go back to that why, and it's still true. Those, are, those words to me give me goosebumps now because it's what I connect with, and that's what gets me out the door. And if people could learn that at the beginning of their career, I think we'd have a lot more success in getting people through the door. You mentioned earlier that one's ready, you know, your website and Instagram and everything that you have with it. The, the idea is to, is to educate more people about being a power rescue and jumper uh, to that end. What's the one thing about being a PJ you wish that everybody commonly knew? Oh man, it is a lot, a lot of preparation for not a lot of payoff. Like it is not sexy at all. We make the joke all the time. Like jump, I'll use jumping as an example. Jumping looks awesome. And those 30 second to a minute clips that somebody is, you know, you're in full kit with, you know, O2 and you've got a weapon on and it's at night. So you have your nods and you look really, really cool, man. That's, that's an entire day's worth of planning from the jump master. He showed up five hours earlier. It was hot the entire time. It always is, or it was unquestionably way too cold. Then you get that minute jump off and then there's two hours of post time that you have to do after driving back from the DZ, however far away that is. Jump days are like 18 hours long. Some days you go on a deployment and you will sit there for days and weeks at a time and not get anything. And that's the, that's great, right? We already talked about no calls are great calls because if there is a call, guess what? Someone's having a terrible day and they need you. That's, that's a terrible thing. 
So the number one thing, the number one misconception is, is people are like, Oh man, you guys just must do stuff all the time. Well, yeah, we are training a hundred percent effort all of the time, but sometimes there are long periods where you're just like, man, nothing is going on right now. Or you put a whole bunch of work into a, to a very short event. And of course, on you know social media or you know videos that get passed around between the bros and stuff everything looks like it's all fun and games and all good but it takes a lot of work a lot of work and that doesn't include the admin you're not making it as glorious as people you're not making <laughs> know, it as right? glorious as you should for people to sign up i should exactly yeah exactly well that's exactly why we're there right it's like you know we get a lot of questions on what is it like day to day you know what, what's it like being a pj day to day Hey man, if I told you my day-to-day job, you'd be like, man, I should probably pick something else. That doesn't sound like a whole lot of fun. Um, but it is, you know, when you go back to it, like our teams are getting ready right now. I've got, um, you know, sometime in in the next, uh, you know, period of life, we're going to start going downrange again. You know, we're going to, we've got a deployment that's on the window. And as we get closer to that deployment, man, I, I get more and more excited. And, and I feel like it's, it's definitely all worth it. All that admin is worth it. All of that that sit around and wait sometimes is a, a military axiom and we all do it everywhere. Pararescue is not immune to military bureaucracy, right? Like no matter how cool I am, I still work for the air force. I still have to do CBTs. I still have to do like silly admin tasks, but I don't want to do, but you know, in the end, I'm going to get to live my why I'm going to get to take teams down range and I'm going to be there for somebody on at the very, at the you know worst, worst part of their life. I get to be there to, to stop that event from happening. So it all evens out. Uh, I was on the website, onesready.com, and I noticed that uh, you guys have your own line of, or at least you're partnered with a line of hair products for what is, quote, legendary PJ hair. Uh, (laughs) Do you have legendary PJ hair? I absolutely have legendary PJ hair. It's one of the things I actually, half of the assessment selection is getting that. (laughs) It is. It is. Yeah. Thanks to, thanks to (laughs) outer regs. They're, they're keeping my, my luscious lock. I don't know what it is about the the career field, but that started to be a thing. Like, Oh, you PJs and your, your perfect hair, that perfect operator hair. And it's, it's literally taken on a life of its own. I don't know why it is one of those things that people associate with our career field, but it 100% is, is wow. it's having those, that luscious PJ hair. That would have taken me out uh, quite early in the process because hair <laughs> is not something that has gone on strong in, in my family. We so, make uh, some exceptions. Oh, well, that's good. At least if I pass everything else, I might fail the hair part, but that's more genetic than anything else. But it is kind of funny. So again, go to onesready.com. You guys got a lot of other partner discounts uh, on the website. Of course, you mentioned the podcast uh, and the Instagram, One's yeah. Ready. So great place to get all the information and learn a lot about you. Uh, as well in your journey. Aaron, it's been amazing yeah. talking to your brother. Certainly uh, a lot of incredible information, some some amazing perspective. Don't let Justin Lassie give any shit. You lived up to the billing uh, that we knew you would. So certainly appreciate uh, all the time, all the honesty, and, and a great conversation, brother. Absolutely. Thanks so much. And if anybody out there wants to get a hold of us, please hit us up. Shoot us a DM. We answer uh, right away on on the Ones Ready Project. So hit us up on Instagram or check out the YouTube. We put all the podcasts up on YouTube as well. So if you have any desire to come into AppSpec or if you guys just want to talk, if you want to talk about what we talked about on here, we're always available. So so hit us up. And I just want to say thanks for bringing me on. This was, really was an honor. And you know, I'll, I'll definitely give Justin some shit about how I smoked him on his own podcast. Absolutely. Aaron Love, thanks for being part of the Hazard Ground. Thank you. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, 
Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.